Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, Episode 17, Like a Friend, where we will be looking at Chapters 30 through 32 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of Balance Restored. A quickly read explanation of the pod. Each week we will be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text. With an Aristotelian for most of the week, after that we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact and then share a recommended thing of the week. We will finally wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives, and I read that wrong, but I don't care. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books, though we're open to that, I guess? Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other two little novellas in the continuity, or you just really don't care about spoilers and you just want to listen to us ramble. It's okay if you do. Also, a word to our community. Please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds. We enjoy exploring. Well, I hope that wasn't the extent of your ability to speak quickly because you've got the recap this week. Yeah, I know. We also punished me. <laughs> Much to... At least the delight of you, and possibly to the delight of our audience, though if our audience is delighted by this, I'm a little sad and disappointed in you all. I ate raspberries, and here it is for your listening pleasure. Good morning. So, let me tell you a little bit about my morning. Wake up, say, hey, I'm gonna get my reading done for episode 17 and we're gonna get all prepared and do our recording and be happy get it all out of the way and will looks at me you know what he says he says i'm getting donuts for breakfast he never gets donuts for breakfast i'm beginning to believe that maybe just maybe he hasn't forgotten that i owe everyone raspberries and now what could have been an amazing little treat for us is filling me with dread. <sighs> All right, he just got home. Hello. Hello. What have you brought? Got us donuts and also croissant parquet sandwiches. Hmm. What manner of Donut. Okay, so let's see, you know, it being fall, I got us some apple cider donuts. Ooh. I also got you specifically a pumpkin pie donut. And then I also got a, uh, you know, a jelly donut just for you. Thought you might like that. Depends on the kind of jelly. Well, you'll be thrilled to know it's raspberry. Damn it, I was right. You didn't forget. Look. I'm not making you do anything you haven't agreed to do already. Mm. So I'm very not happy. I can hear plates rattling around. All I want is that apple cider one. You don't want the pumpkin pie one? Okay, I want the pumpkin pie one. 
I don't want to raspberry. Well, as the philosopher Jagger says, you can't always get what you want. I don't know if you watch Save a Fox, it's Jagger. Jagger. <laughs> anyway, I'm gonna prove to the audience that I'm actually eating the raspberry jelly. I'm gonna cut a little sliver of it specifically because I do not want to have to do this again, guys. There is the offending donut. And as you can see, they've filled it to the brim. I'm still going to take a chunk out of it and control how much I have to eat of this thing. But judging from Will's plate, he understands that I don't need to have three donuts as we try to keep Sokka from eating all of them. <laughs> Good luck. All right, everybody, doing this for you. Ham it up. I gotta rescue my donuts from the cat first. All right, I almost forgot to press record again, which would have made this absolutely terrifying. And I'm <laughs> also trying to make it so that my cat, Sokka, does not put his tail on the uh, rest of my donuts. One second, I'll prove it. Sokka, Sokka. I, I, Sokka, we've got one being rescued from the table now, and then this one is too big to hold. Oh, see, yep, cat's a duck. Okay, where was I? I should probably stick this stupid thing in my mouth before <laughs> the other cat just destroys my breakfast. Will is trying valiantly. It's not working so well. Okay, down the hatch. Oh god, that's disgusting. Isn't that awesome? No. Oh. Delicious raspberries? Oh, I hate Why are you making it sound like I'm forcing you to do this? You agree that this is going to be your punishment. Yeah, but I don't expect to how to do it so much. This is gross. On oh, their seeds. I'm excited to try this one. I mean, it is gushy. This is gross. But, all done. Ah, not doing that again. <laughs> that donut was disgusting. It was great. What are you talking about? Also, unfortunately for me, like, I don't like really greasy breakfasts. And what they had at the donut shop was a rather greasy breakfast. So, yeah. The apple cider one was really good. How was the pumpkin pie one? Quite good. So you got two-thirds of a good breakfast. Not exactly. I don't usually eat donuts for breakfast. That day was a weird day, and we decided not to record this that day. Probably smart. So, raspberries be damned. You got that all out of your system and ready for the recap? The raspberries are technically, yes, out of my system. It was a week ago. Well, I don't know how long raspberries stay in your system. They're not bubblegum. You seem to react to swallowing them the way that you would react to swallowing bubblegum. No, bubblegum swallowing is better. What planet are you from? Anyway, ready? In three, two, one, go. Quoth is really pissy over the loss of his loot and takes it out on everyone around him. 
He is finding Illidan's class even more frustrating and is unable to concentrate on making his gram. At lunch, Anchor gives him a note from Denna, and Quoth goes searching for her, only to find her crying. Both of their spirits lift because of the company, and Denna drags Quoth off to a shop where she gives him a loot case and returns his loot, which makes Quoth burst into tears. Denna apologizes profusely, and Quoth is actually quite sweet to her. Afterward, Sim gives Quoth a gel to put on to avoid being burned in a fire, and then Quoth finishes his gram and lets his friends try to use a voodoo doll to stab him slash test out the gram. Yay, the gram works. 38.42 seconds. Yay, I only stumbled like once. And hey, no raspberries for you. Thank the universe. <laughs> All right, so how about we dive in? Yes, this is a very long chapter. And I'm going to admit that I kind of rushed the ending of that recap because I really didn't want to have another instance of raspberries. Well, that's okay. The recap is mostly meant to be just a high-level overview. You don't have to be granular. I wasn't granular on the time that I lost. There's just so much stuff packed into that. Anyway, so we start off and Quoth is in a bad mood because he's in Eladin's class. He's in a bad mood because someone stole his loot and he's in Eladin's class. He's never in a good mood in Eladin's class, it seems like. He's just in an especially bad one right now. I gotta say, though, when someone has taken a thing of yours, especially when you don't have very much... That loss is just painful down to your soul, especially something like an instrument. And Quoth has already experienced these losses of instruments before, like with his dad's lute that got broken. This is a part of his soul. His music is the thing that keeps him going, that keeps him sane, that keeps him from just being the biggest pissant known to man and he knows that and here he is in Elodin's class Elodin is trying to teach Quoth something and Quoth to put it nicely does not have the same learning style that Elodin would appreciate his students to have I love how Elodin starts off by saying today we're going to talk about things that we can't talk about <laughs> things that we can't discuss that we can't describe and he asks for examples, so we've got a couple in here. Yurish provides humor, because if you explain a joke, it isn't a joke, which is something that I have said oftentimes on this podcast. However, there is a style of humor where if you continue trying to explain the joke, it goes full circle and becomes funny again. But it's not funny in the same way that the joke originally was. The humor in that case comes because you're laughing at the person trying to explain the joke. Okay, I'll accept that. It's not the kind of humor I like anyway, so... Then Fenton, of course, just says naming, which is cheap but accurate. And, of course, Kvothe can only say, I reject the premises. <laughs> there isn't anything that can't be explained. And Elodin says, you should have just said music. That would have been a good one. Okay, yeah, but Kvothe reacts to this in a way that you would react to this. Which is, don't tell me what I should be thinking. Don't try to tell me how to act, how to be, how to think, what to think. There's a little bit of his contrarian pride here. I can explain music, even though I couldn't. And I do appreciate the self-awareness that Quoth the narrator seems to have about all of this. Yeah, maybe. There is a little sentence here that makes me want to tell my favorite dad joke. So tell your favorite dad joke. So what 
the sentence is in here is that some things can only be inferred. My favorite dad joke, as you are well aware. <laughs> there are two types of people in this world. Those that can extrapolate from incomplete information. I do, though, enjoy, as you said, both the narrator or quote the narrator doing the, I said, of course I can explain this. And then, you know, I really didn't think that I could. I just wanted to say that to Elodin because he was bothering me. It is both the prideful child. I mean, and honestly, let's remember he's 15 years old or 16 or whatever. He's young. I don't know anymore how old he is, but he is under 20. And teenagers are profoundly know-it-all-ish and even ones who don't actually know a lot like Quoth does. I think Quoth the teenager actually benefits from this being a story being told by older Quoth because older Quoth actually knows this stuff and is attributing it to himself when he was a teenager. I know so many people get all up in arms over Quoth being a Mary Sue type character where he just knows how to do everything. But they're forgetting who's telling the story. And we've established that Quoth the narrator is not exactly a reliable one. Right. And so that's the things that I can always just roll my eyes at and go, Ugh, and then continue enjoying the book. Partly because Patrick Rothfuss is writing and partly because would you really want to read a thousand plus page book about someone who was bad at everything? There's a reason why competency porn is a genre. <laughs> Let's continue. There's a lot in this little section that I think is good to chew on in your brain. Can you explain how music works without using music? I can explain how music physically works without using music. Because I took a class on the physics of music and sound. But... That being said, I cannot truly explain how music, different from just sound or speaking or poetry, evokes all the emotions, all of the feelings, all of the joy or the sadness or what have you that it can make. I can't explain to you why normal just sounds bother the ever-loving forking shirt out of me like leaf blowers and dogs barking and all of the stuff that just sets off my misophonia but I love having instrumental music on even while I'm editing there is a massive difference and I can't explain to you what that actually is other than it's just pleasing but if you try to break down pleasing like yeah, you're going to get into certain chords and whether they sound happy or melancholy or sad or angry, the way that things are played, the way that you hear them bouncing off of the space you're in. But that's all using the sound and the music to describe it. And so Elodin says that's not really describing it or explaining music. Yeah, a lot of this actually reminds me of the classic Tenacious D song, Tribute. Because this is not the greatest song in the world. This is just a tribute. 
you know, you couldn't remember the greatest song in the world, so you're just going to have to settle for this tribute. So we don't know what the actual greatest song in the world actually sounded like. We just know what the song Tribute sounds like. And meanwhile, we don't actually know what any of the songs that Kvoth has described in the book sound like. We don't know what their tunes are. We have an idea of the mood that they're supposed to evoke, but the actual tune itself is a mystery. We'll have to wait till Lin-Manuel Miranda gets around to finally adapting the thing. <laughs> and then Fella says, well, how about love? I think that most people would be hard-pressed to truly define what love is. And also, I want to point out that there is a massive array of different types of love. Love does not have to be romantic. Yeah, oftentimes it is, but there is plenty of non-romantic love that is no less powerful. We see several examples of this in this book. We look at Will and Sim who have been sacrificing their knights to protect their friend whom they love dearly. That is a gesture as grand and as deeply loving as any grand romantic effort might be. We also see Lorian taking time to explain to her son how the world works and how he fits into it. We see Arladin gently educating Kvoth in how to treat people. We see Abanthi taking delight in Kvoth's learning capabilities. All of these are acts of love, and these are all expressions of love that don't have anything to do with romance. But then you also have Lorien and Arladin expressing romantic love towards one another. And the love that Kvoth has for his parents as he describes their last night together. And in general, Kvoth's love for his wider extended family within the troop is also real. It's very affectionate. It is loving. It is people doing things for one another because they care. It is showing that intentionality. And to me, love is not a thing, it is an act, or a lot of acts. It's a pattern of acts, and Kvothe has been on the receiving end of a lot of these. I consider him a fortunate person in the quality of his friends, his family. Overall, he's got a lot of really good people in his corner, and I sometimes just wish he'd recognize them. There is a sentence here, you can't prove non-existence, and that's quite true. Yeah, it's why arguments about whether Bigfoot does or doesn't exist end up being really tiresome. The most anyone can say is that someone has not conclusively proved the existence of Bigfoot. And I tend to agree with those. It's also important to note that failing to prove the negative also doesn't prove the positive. True. To say that someone has not disproved the existence of Bigfoot is not the same as saying Bigfoot must exist. <laughs> so at this point, we come to Elodin using both Fella and Kvoth, who is, again, being rather pissy, as props for kind of a skit about falling in love. And Elodin, I think, is getting his jollies just from annoying Kvoth at this point. Well, can you blame him? Kvoth is the student that he's stuck his neck out for and who is just refusing to get the point. That is true. At this point, though, 
we have this whole mimicry of love. And then one of the things that just shows exactly who Elodin is, and Elodin himself, I don't know that he should be like lauded as a great person. No, I would agree with that. He's not a great person, but he has an evocative point here. Yes, because he's like, quoth, you cannot see subtleties. All you want to do is the easiest route from point A to point B. And that's not always the right one. To be fair, sometimes it is good to find a surprising direct route. That can be a very efficient way to solve a problem, and it can be incredibly effective. It's not always the best way, though sometimes it might be. But when it comes to things like love, it most certainly is not. So we have three paths that he goes through. So the first possibility is the two young lovers express what they feel, try to play the half-heard song of their hearts, and it's honest, but it goes badly. And part of it is they don't really know how to speak one another's love languages. They don't know how to really express what they're trying to say in ways that their partner will appreciate. Or here. The second path is one where they spend some quality time together and learn to speak to one another and to speak in ways that the other will hear and appreciate and act in ways that the other will hear and appreciate. But that can take time. It does take time. Like, I remember when we got together, it took us some time to really get to the point where we recognized how we could express our love for one another in ways that the other would appreciate. And it took us some time to build to that. And it was absolutely worth it. It was learning to figure out what are the things that are going to give that little smile on your face that you have that's just for when things are going just the way you want them to. What are the things that elicit that sort of silly grin on my face? What are those things that, when I do just the right thing, make you feel like you've got a great big warm blanket around your soul? You know, how can I give you the hug that I desperately want to give you and have you receive it the way I want you to? And it's not just that. It's also how do I provide criticism without sounding like I'm being judgmental? where I'm trying to help build you up instead of you interpreting that I am trying to break you down. What can I adjust to make sure that you hear me the way that I want you to hear me? How can we work within our own mental illnesses? How do I work with your ADHD that also causes depression issues? How do you work with my anxiety issues? Knowing that Saying the wrong thing can sometimes cause a cascading effect of just spiraling down into the toilet. And how do we know when, for instance, simple things like physical touch, when is it comforting versus when is it jarring? When is a silly joke going to be appreciated and when is it going to lighten the mood and when is it going to just make the other person angry? Knowing all of these things takes time to familiarize yourselves with one another. And sometimes you talk of light things, sometimes you talk of deep things. But at the end, it's all about recognizing that it takes time to build that level of trust. And then, then, you have the path of quoth. Which is to say, you grope. 
you grab their tits. Ew. Ew, 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 ew. Glad you're the one who said it. Yeah, it's not advisable. We're never going to advise that that be step uno. Unless the person says, hey, I would like you to. In which case, grab away. But... As long as everyone's consenting. But how are you going to know unless they tell you? Right. We don't kink shame, but we also definitely appreciate consent. But Elodin, ever eloquent, is trying to explain to Kvoth that he's trying to subtly introduce this very almost sensual experience of learning trying to seduce him with knowledge and understanding. I'm trying to teach you. Kvoth cannot hear this. And so Elodin just gets in his face with his nose almost touching Kvoth and says, quit grabbing my tits. And who can blame him? It's annoying. Kvoth is that student who is just being contrary at every possible turn not engaging with any of the exercises that he's been given, and really just going out of his way to try and prove that he's the smartest person in the room. And people who think that they are the smartest person in the room also think that they do not have anything to learn. Exactly. And Elodin is like, child, you are not smarter than I am. In fact, you have stuffed wax in your ears. Stop it. I empathize with Master Elodin here a bit. He's trying so hard, and the one student that he has the highest hopes for is the one giving him the most trouble right now. When Kvoth is able to be in that space where he can accept things, where he's in that flow state, when he is accepting of the things that people are trying to teach him, he is a savant. But it's like he only wants to learn things on his own terms. We go on, Quoth leaves the class in a foul mood, and he blames it all on the loss of his loot. Not on the fact that he just is stubborn and he doesn't want to take in what Elodin is trying to shove in his face. Like, no, mm, it's not just the loss of his loot. However, I will admit that when something is going wrong, Anything else going wrong just winds up being worse for it. I also think that part of his problem is not just the loss of his loot. And he says as much. It's also the fact that he hasn't been sleeping much. He's only getting maybe five hours of sleep at night. And kids that age, they need at least eight, oftentimes up to 12. When you are growing at that age, you need sleep. And... Kvoth is being sleep-deprived. He is literally under attack at every instant. He's having to live on edge. His life is not terribly stable. He's skirting poverty at every single turn. And he knows that at the end of all this, he owes a massive debt to Davy that he probably won't be able to pay off. And even if he does, he probably won't be able to get enough money to move on to the next year in the university. I think it's fair to state that the loss of his loot is the straw that broke the camel's back, but I don't think that it's just about the loot or about the loss of his property. He also does state 
that the music was the glue that held his soul together. And I feel that. I absolutely feel that. When there's something that brings you solace in the storm that is your life, and that suddenly ripped away, it's really hard to find that equilibrium, that balance, that feeling of stability. He's in a rough spot across the board, and I kind of feel like any one of the various things that he's dealing with right now are things that he probably would be able to cope with reasonably well. But all of them together compound one another. So the lack of sleep compounds all of the other problems. The loss of his loot compounds all of his other problems. And yeah, it's no wonder that he's not responding well. As we move on, Kvothe goes to have lunch at Anchor's, and apparently Anchor realizes just how bad everything is for Kvothe right now. And in taking pity for him, gives him extra food. He comes over and he says, Hey, so how was that dinner that you were going to go to? And Kvothe is confused. And then Anchor gets a little bit like, Oh, really? There's a girl that left you a note. You were supposed to get the note. What happened to the note? <laughs> and I will acknowledge that both Will and I completely forgot about this, but I feel vindicated because another King Killer podcast, the King Killer podcast, also forgot about this particular note because Denna is just bad at leaving notes for Quoth. I'm also going to point out that the mail delivery system in Temerant is weird. Like, it's revolving around runners knowing where other people are going to be, and they just kind of show up as if, oh yeah, I just ran there from wherever, no matter how far away that might actually be. And to go very long distances, they carry something until they're like, can I sell this to somebody? And then you just kind of hope that it gets there. It's like trying to say, okay, yeah, we'll just hitchhike there. <laughs> Except it's with a non-thinking thing. It's weird, and... I mean, it makes sense given the sort of pre-industrial state of the world and the fact that there isn't automation a lot of the way and you don't have things like cars or trains or things that can cover long distances on established routes and schedules. Or even the simple concept of an address. Right. I mean, all of this is relying on finding someone with the tribal knowledge to know where to go. This seems stupid. Anyway, let's continue on. Anchor pulls a sopping wet note out from behind the bar... Again, ick. Anyway, and it's Denna asking Kvothe to dinner, and then Kvothe going, I wonder if she's still there! To be fair, in that situation, I think that's as good a start as any. Maybe. Because he can at least go, well, which way did she go when she left, and then start branching out from there. But it was like the night before. Yeah, the trail has gone rather cold. But he could at least ask, did she leave a calling card or a place where she's staying or anything like that? Well, it lifts Kvothe's spirits enough where he goes off to Emre and he stumbles upon her because that's the only way he ever finds her. I turned a corner and saw her sitting in a small public garden under a tree. Okay. This, though, is interesting to me. And it gets ignored so often and... Like, we move on from it, and we don't really get to dig into it. And it's one of those, like, theory things that just bubbles. She had a letter in one hand, and a half-eaten pear in the other. 
Where had she come by a pair so late in the season? I want to know now, where did she come by a pair so late in the season? Is it just because of money? Is it because she's Faye? Confirmed, she's the Cathay. That wasn't the route that I was going to go down, but if that's the one you want to go down, cool. <laughs> did she travel through the Fae? Does she do that regularly? How does she look like a teenager and yet she has been around forever, according to Stanchion? There's a lot of questions there. One other thing that I noticed on this is Denna seems to go looking for Quoth about as much as Quoth goes looking for her. And they have about the same level of success rate, which is to say they only ever find each other by accident, most likely because they're both looking where the other person isn't. I mean, if they're looking where the other person is, then they'd find each other now, wouldn't they? I think also it's sort of like how when you're lost in the woods, the rule of thumb that everyone says is stay where you are and don't move. Let someone else find you. Right. I'm really glad that you didn't do the moss only grows on the north side of the tree because that's actually demonstrably false. Right. No, the, the one that actually is there is stay where you are. Don't move around because the more you do that, the harder it is for people to find you. This logic also applies to if you're in a store together with somebody and you split up. Stay where you were, where you said that you'd be. So Quoth steps out from behind the tree and says, hi, Detta. And then notices that she's crying and goes, are you all right? And she was fine up until the point where she was asked, are you all right? And then she just bursts into tears. That's me. I guarantee you I'm not all right. Like, I look like I'm about to burst into tears, but I'm holding it in. This is part of my anxiety disorder. I just, like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm trying really hard to contain myself. And then someone is like, are you okay? And then I just, like, nah! I think also Quoth is giving her permission to not be all right. And I think that's really important. I think she feels more safe with him than just about anyone. And he feels that way around her, too. The note that I have about this next bit of the chapter is just how often we get the words truly, honestly, smile the true smile. All of these things that talk about the veracity of what's happening, about how they're open towards one another and they're not playing a game of trying to pretend that they are something else. So here is actually a bit where we see Quoth maybe heard some of what Master Elodin was talking about, which is to say he is using his familiarity with Dana to speak his affection and love for her in ways that she is prepared to accept and hear. And she is doing the same for him. It is not just coming out and saying, we love each other, let's be boyfriend and girlfriend. It is saying, I am going to show you that I love you by one, complimenting you, two, appreciating your presence, three, spending time with you and making you feel safe and finding ways to make her feel safe that she actually appreciates in ways that aren't just tokens, but actual representations of safety. Also, though, Denna gives him that safety net, too. She looks at him and says, Is there anything you'd like to talk about? I don't know that I could do anything to help. 
but I don't sleep well myself and I know what it's like. And the genuine offer of help catches Kvoth off guard. There are no games, there are no expectations of reciprocation. Knowing that Denna cared was like a swallow of warm wine on a winter night. I could feel the sweet heat of it in my chest. I smiled at her, a real smile. The expression felt odd on my face and I wondered just how long I had been scowling without knowing it. And then honestly just saying, you're helping just by being here. Your presence is a balm to my soul. And it's not that he's saying that Sim and Will offering to help wasn't genuine or wasn't a help, but he has come to rely on their help almost in a way that is like, of course you're going to help me. I just know that you're there. Like if I did a trust fall, you'd catch me. But with Denna, he doesn't really expect that she has that automatic response. It isn't expected, but it is very welcome. And then Denna has this interesting little quote where she says, it's easy to forget when you're around, which she realizes comes out wrong because then it makes it sound like she takes him for granted. What she really means is when he's around, it's easy for her to forget all of the things that she doesn't like about her life. And she lists a few things, her circumstances, the things she's done, and even the person that she is. I love the sentence, you're my safe harbor in an endless stormy sea. For all of Kvothe's faults and for all of their stilted conversations and for all of the fact that neither one of them opens up about their past or essentially word vomits all over the other, neither one of them is judgmental towards the other. There is no expectation of having to be a certain way. They're allowed to just be and they also take comfort in that. There's something to knowing that the other person doesn't judge you for your mistakes and doesn't think any worse of you because you've made decisions, whether they agree with those decisions or not. I mean, I look at us and you and I have made different life decisions throughout the course of our time on this planet, but I also know that neither one of us judge the other person for those choices, good or bad. We just accept that those were the choices that we made. And at the end of the day, those choices ended up leading us to one another. And that's what matters. There's a little bit of a discussion about the note that Denna left. And then I guess that there is kind of an expectation that people won't get notes because it doesn't seem like she was terribly upset by the fact that he wasn't at dinner. Like, she hoped that she would have a dinner date, but she laughs it off a little bit like, Heh, dinner was good. I ate both of our portions. We've talked about the weirdness of the mail system, so it would be extremely strange to put any kind of stock in it. Right. I think that maybe in the society you have to be a little less tied to the idea that information passes properly. And also that if you're stood up for a date, it's not because the person doesn't want to go on the date with you. It's because the mail system is so, so, so dumb. I'd say ill-developed. It's immature. It's not dumb. It's the best that they've got right now. I mean, part of it is there isn't really a centralized world government or even continental government at this point. You have just a series of loosely connected city-states that all have their own bureaucracies and organs that don't necessarily play nice with one another. 
okay, inter-nuance. So like I say, mail delivery is probabilistic at best. I mean, even when everything is all part of the same governmental organ, I mean, witness today, <laughs> like our own current supply chain systems and mail delivery systems, it's probabilistic. But we take it for granted that it works correctly more often than not. In this current stage of development that Temerant is in, I think it's probably about as good as it can get. Fair enough. But back to what I was trying to make my point about. She wasn't terribly upset that he wasn't there. Like it wasn't anxiety inducing or like doubting his friendship just because he wasn't at dinner. And there's this kind of back and forth about how Denna is like, well, at least I know I can catch you at Anchors tomorrow because you play at this certain time. And I know that you're supposed to be in that space at that time. And Quoth is just like, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that tomorrow. Sorry. He doesn't say why. But Denna's just like, but what? Uh-uh. Mm, no. I can't find you most of the time. You can't change your schedule on me. Why would you go and do something like that? And then kind of this doubting of whether or not Quoth is also looking for her. Like, they just need to talk to one another openly and plainly about this whole fact that every time that they are in the same city, they are looking for one another and passing like ships in the night. Don't ignore the whole, I'm sure you're always looking for me, as just a sarcastic thing and then just move on. Look at her and just go, yes, actually, yes. Yes, I am. I am always looking for you. And I'm just as bad at finding you as you are at finding me. Except you don't have a set schedule. Anywho. So then Denna proceeds to provide him with the surprise that she had been hoping to give him after dinner. And then so Denna does the cutest thing ever and she's just is like literally bouncing with excitement when she's trying to be like, okay, I have something for you, but I can't tell you what it is. I just want you to come and see. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. It kind of reminds me of anytime I try and get you a present for like Christmas <laughs> or your birthday or just whenever, I get really excited to see how you like it. Oh my goodness, the best example ever of this. What was it, like 2014 for my birthday? A, ADD, impulsiveness. You have a really hard time buying me something ahead of time and keeping it from me. So you tried to game the system by not buying me anything until like the day of, or maybe the day before. It must have been the day before, but you bought it from Amazon. Okay. Because you get a package arrived notification from our apartment complex and you just practically dance <laughs> because you have found the perfect thing for me and you really want me to open it. So much so that you're like, guess what I got you? Guess what I got you? Guess what I got you? <laughs> and then we played 20 questions on the way to go pick it up. And then before I could open it, you told me what it was. <laughs> it was my Harley Quinn. What was it? It was from Funko. It was the kind of plushies. Yeah. And it's perfect. And I love it. I absolutely adore it. And you were right. It was exactly the perfect gift for me. But just the way that you couldn't contain yourself. I got you the best thing. I got the right thing. I got it. I got it. I have it. And I need you to know what it is because I need you to open it and be excited and happy. <laughs> to be fair, some context. 
Prior to this, my gift giving had been haphazard at best and outright horrifying at worst. <laughs> I'm thinking about the time that I got you the bunny slippers that looked like actual live rabbits. <laughs> I thought those would be really cute and fun and they were just kind of terrifying because it made it look like I had hollowed out some rabbits and then stuck them on your feet. I mean, so this is why I like cartoon bunny slippers or like vorpal bunny slippers, but I do not like realistic looking bunny slippers. No, no. And you tried. You tried very hard to make sure that I would like them. You even wore them a bunch trying to be like, aren't these cute? And I'm like, they are not. No, they are just horrifying. <laughs> I do not like them. We'll have to include a picture on our Patreon of this. We will if I can find a photo. I think there's probably one on one of our respective Facebooks. Probably. Anyway, let's continue on. So they get to this small shop and Denna's like, hey, close your eyes, close your eyes, close your eyes. And the person who runs the shop has to just be like so amused. It's like, oh, good, you're back. You finally showed up for this thing. After I put all this work in, because this was a custom order. On top of that, with all the money you paid me. And then Dinah's just like, okay, you can open your eyes now. I want to see your reaction. And in front of Quoth is the most beautiful loot case ever constructed, ever. And it's pretty clear that this is something that Denna has spent a lot of money on. And a lot of time working with the artist that created it. Yeah, this is not just some off-the-shelf model. This is something that has been custom-designed specific to Kvothe's unique needs. So he's had problems with hinges falling off and things like this, so this doesn't have hinges. This is something that is designed with secret pockets, which are the thing that Kvothe loves the most. Right, he finds the idea of little pockets so enchanting. Denna has proven that she really gets Kvothe with a gift that probably costs more than his net worth has been through the entirety of our last thousand-ish pages of reading. Yeah, if you were to add up every penny that Quoth has ever had, it would not be enough to afford this. There's also a nice little, why do I even need to know about this? But we all know why he needs to know about this, because this loot case doubles as a flotation device. <laughs> it would be super waterproof until water permeated the leather, but that's pretty much the be-all, end-all of possibilities especially in this time frame in this place where mail isn't even reliable yeah i mean in a world without gore-tex this is probably about as good as it gets you know then both has this bit about like but i don't have my loot anymore and it feels sort of like it's going to be a gift of the magi situation yeah he doesn't know how to tell denna that this wonderful amazing thoughtful gift is going to sit empty and then the biggest most jarring amount of relief when 
the artisan pulls his lute out from behind the counter and Quoth just loses it. It's a weight lifted off of his mind. This is kind of a breaking point for him and not in a bad way. In that sort of realizing that that tension that's been dogging him for quite some time now is finally lifted. He's got things finally breaking his way for the first time in a while. You got to figure like just seeing that one, his loot was not actually stolen. Two, it was taken so that someone could craft a custom case to fit it and protect it. This is a truly immense gift from Denna. And I think Quoth really appreciates the magnitude of what it represents. And this was a truly thoughtful gesture on Denna's part. Like, she's seen that this loot is the most important thing in Quoth's life to him. And she's seen just how much he cradles this, how he babies his loot, how much he absolutely relies on it to be a part of him. She's also seen that the existing case that he's been keeping it in is kind of threadbare. It's the most he's been able to afford. And she's basically said, okay, I'm going to give you something that will allow you to protect this, this part of yourself with the care that it deserves. And you could look at this situation and say, why doesn't Denna just give him the money? And I'll tell you why. Quoth would spend it on things he needs, but not on this. This is a thing that Denna wants him to have, but anything that is given to him, he would give to like his debts with Davy or buy another shirt or any number of mundane things. Well, and even with all of that stuff, even when he does buy himself something nice, like we've seen him use a windfall to buy his loot, for instance, I think this is the sort of thing that he didn't even know that he needed. Because he would be thinking, I have my loot, that's enough, I don't need to do anything extra for it. And so then it would go towards, like you say, just mundane necessities. So let's put it this way. So if you know someone who is struggling to pay for anything, that's a luxury. I'm not saying like, if you know someone who can't afford their groceries, you should buy them a spa day. That's not useful. But if you know someone who is set, but won't or can't afford to give themselves little luxuries, and you can, occasionally do. There's something about being able to have just a little bit of a break from the mundane that can really help. Like, I remember several years ago when I was unemployed, I was between jobs, and I was feeling really strapped. You know, we didn't have a whole lot of money. Pretty much everything we had was going towards our bills just to keep the lights on and, you know, make sure that we had a roof over our head. And I remember my parents gave us a gift card to go watch a movie. And I remember that meant a whole lot to us just because it gave us an afternoon where we could just forget about the boring life that we were living and actually just enjoy ourselves for once. It was a guilt-free way to go have, I wouldn't say frivolous entertainment, but to have a break from the tension. It was a small escape. And if we had gotten $25, just $25, we might have spent that on groceries. Nothing fun. 
it would have just been something that would go sit in the bank account and it would just get used at the next grocery trip. And it wouldn't have meant nearly as much. We wouldn't have had that opportunity to break away. And I'm saying that if somebody is meeting all of their needs but can't get what they would want as kind of a little treat or an extra, and you can do that for a friend or a family member without it being a hardship on you, obviously. I'm sure that they'd love to do it with you, but providing an outlet away from the drudgery, that's a wonderful little treat. This is an amazing gift that Denna has given Quoth, and he recognizes it as such. We see him kind of break down here just in tears of joy. The conversation that happens after this, where Denna realizes that because Quoth didn't get her note, because this carefully constructed experience that she had tried to make for him, much like any QA person, much like any person who is playing the game after it is released, can just go from point A to point B and grab something's tits. It didn't work. It wasn't foolproof, which means it wasn't proof, which means it wasn't person behind the bar is a flake proof. So it didn't work out the way that Denna wanted it to. And then she realizes, oh, holy crap. You've just been spending this whole time since I took your loot worried about what happened to it. Like, that had to have been terrifying and awful for you. And it didn't even occur to me, oh, I'm an idiot. But she's already in that kind of depressed mode where she feels down on herself. And so this is just a little layer of icing on top of that shirt sandwich. It's really easy to start believing all of the negative self-talk. And we can see here that Denna has quite a bit of her own. And so she's seeing Foth's relief and is using that to reinforce that negative self-talk that tells her that she makes bad decisions, that her plans are bad, that all she does is make things worse. Without recognizing that even with all of that, Quoth is deeply grateful that she even thought of him, that she even thought of this as a thing to do for him. Quoth, to his credit, is quick to point out that she did not do anything wrong. I had to interrupt her as she was barely pausing to breathe. This used to happen to me a lot more, especially right around the time where we started dating, where we started living together. I'm not immune to it now. It is definitely part of my anxiety disorder where I am very susceptible to negative self-talk and spiraling and everything leading to another bad thing to why am I so stupid? Why am I always ruining everything? Why did I not think this through? Why, 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 and everything negative? And Quoth just puts a stop on that by interrupting her, by saying, Denna, this is the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me. He recognizes what it cost her to do this. This was not just a impulse buy on her part. You know, this is something she would have had to have saved for. This is something that she would have had to have put thought into. And Quoth recognizes the magnitude of all of that. He reminds her that, no, you did something incredibly thoughtful, incredibly meaningful for me, 
and it's not your fault that we don't have a good mail system here. <laughs> it's not your fault that circumstance prevented me from getting it in a timely fashion. And it's not your fault that I was scared because of all of this. And she just goes and says, but this happens all the time. I try to do something good, but it gets all tangled up. You don't know what it's like. And both and all of us reading this story all know that Quoth messes everything up before it becomes magically better. Everything around Quoth turns into chaos. And he just bursts out laughing. Kind of the way that when I'm on a thrill ride, I burst out laughing because that relief of I was held so tight, kind of anticipating something that I was going to dread. And then when it actually happens... My reaction is not to scream, not to be upset, not any of that stuff. It's to burst out laughing. And I think also this is some self-awareness on Quoth's part, too. Like, he is also, I think, here seeing Denna as someone not who is up on a pedestal, not as someone who is this icon of perfection, who is this marble statue that has no flaws whatsoever. This is a person who is just like him, who understands how he feels because he feels the same way all the time. And there's something to that. Life is complicated. Let's be real. I don't think anybody leads a simple life at all, no matter how much they might protest to the contrary. There are all kinds of complications in everyone's lives, whether those are interpersonal or financial or sociopolitical or economic like there are all kinds of complexities in our lives that are things that we can't control much the way that social media kind of obscures reality occasionally you and i will go on a drive and see things like someone with a huge house with three really expensive cars and a manicured lawn and all of these things that look like that American dream and we'll look at each other and just go I'm kind of jealous of that then the other one will look back and just go mountains of debt they're swimming under mountains of debt more than likely and it's a choice that we've made not to do that does it sometimes suck to see other people having a thing that you want yeah but you don't know for certain how that's being held together, what balance is being struck, what kind of house of cards they're living on. Like I say, things are complex, which means that they're not predictable. You know, we don't understand all of the mechanisms going on underneath a person's surface. And we're all trying our best. We're all making hypotheses about what'll happen next and making experiments to see what happens. And sometimes things just don't go the way we want them to. And I think success boils down to accepting that that'll happen and then learning from it and moving forward. And Quoth's laughter response is what allows Denna to break out of the blame cycle and start thinking, this is just something that didn't go exactly the way I planned, but this result is still a good result. And Kvothe does explain that he feels like he is the king of good intentions done poorly. And they get into more conversation that 
while lacking in necessarily substance or what seems like substance builds one another up and takes them out of whatever spiral they were both going down in tandem and Quoth looks at her and says pure truth you are my bright penny by the roadside you are worth more than salt or the moon on a long night of walking you are sweet wine in my mouth a song in my throat and laughter in my heart I'd argue that their knowledge of one another might be superficial, but I think that their care for one another isn't. This stretch here reminds me a little bit of a song, specifically Like a Friend by Pulp, and that's actually where this episode got its title. So there's a set of lines here. It says, You are the car I never should have bought. You're the train I never should have caught. You're the cut that makes me hide my face. You're the party that makes me feel my age. And like a car crash I can see but I just can't avoid. Like a plan I've been told that I should never board. Like a film that's so bad but I gotta stay till the end. Let me tell you now, it's lucky for you that we're friends. And I kind of feel that this is how Quoth feels about Denna. Like, he says, you're a luxury I can't afford. Everything that is with Denna is this massive bonus. That everything sensible would tell him, no, don't spend time. But this is what he needs. And these are choices that maybe he'll regret, but he can't and will not take them back. He will own his choices with Denna. And I think that's really responsible there. And I think it's also really meaningful. I think this is also a relationship with Denna that isn't transactional at all. Like Denna is used to every relationship being immensely transactional which is why it means so much to her that Kvothe expects nothing from her, that even just her mere presence is more than he deserves, that he doesn't feel entitled to her, like he owns her. So any relationship that they have is purely by mutual consent, and that they are both finding value in one another intrinsically, as opposed to one another's money or their material possessions or anything like that. It's all just who they are. I have to say also that this is the sweetest interaction that we see between them. I think it's the most genuine and the most real. And it's the most relatable to me. And this is where I can see a lot of people really enjoying the two of them and feeling that they have this grounded-ish love story. This is Kvothe learning the lesson that Elodin was trying to teach him, even though he doesn't realize that he's learned it. Or equate it to what Elodin was trying to teach. They spend the afternoon together. We don't get details, but hopefully they spend it learning about one another. Hours later, Quoth walks back to the university with a spring in his step. He's very happy. His heart has been lifted. The tension is seeped out of him. The sun was warm and soothing. The breeze was cool. My luck was beginning to change. And then a drastically different pair of chapters. So then we've got the crucible and this chapter is a little weird. Let's say that, say that again. So then, so then we've got chapter 31, the crucible. It doesn't seem to have an obvious connection to anything that Kvothe is working on yet. Except future knowledge us knows exactly what this is for. 
but it's also a little bit of humble pie for Kvothe, which is to say he knows nothing about alchemy. This is the first time he admits really to Sim that Sim is smarter, at least in this aspect, than he is. That and Eldvintic. That too. This chapter goes on to be, okay, now that I have my loot back, everything is going back into balance and my work in the fishery is going easier, which means that his gram is coming together. My classes breezed by. Elodin even seemed to make more sense. I think Kvothe is one of those people where if you try to tell him something and get him to understand and have the lesson click right away, you are going to be very disappointed. But if he goes away from it for like an hour, a day, three days, whatever, it will eventually sink in and then click. Which is actually why it is better to have a good night's sleep after learning something intensive than it is to try to cram it back into your brain the same night. Yeah, this is why my strategy for test taking was always study during the day, get a good dinner, go to sleep relatively early, and then wake up early, do a final review just to make sure everything is good, and then go do the test. This is also why, although for a lot of DigiPen students, it is almost a point of pride that they don't sleep at night, I always made sure I was in bed, or at least done studying, before midnight. And on the nights where I wasn't in bed before midnight, it wasn't because I was working past midnight. Sometimes I had to get things done, turned in, and then have some downtime. So I'd go and play Skyrim or Ori in the Blind Forest or something that would take all of that tension and energy and put it towards something else like slaying dragons. Yes, I remember this. You needed that. And you always ended up doing a lot better as a result of that. So then Kvothe and Sim are in the alchemy lab. And Sim is showing off this awesome thing that he has made. And Kvothe is trying to pretend that he understands everything. And Sim is like, shut up. Sim's like, no, you're just going to Dunning-Kruger yourself here. <laughs> like, you're going to think you know what I mean, but you really don't. Because this isn't just chemistry plus. This is completely different. You know just enough to get yourself into trouble. Right. That, yes. It's kind of the way that when I say that I can code things, when I can use Python or C Sharp or any of those things, I can do it well enough that when I hand it to somebody who actually knows how to code, they basically facepalm and say, of course you did this so that it would work, but did you realize that you can break this in half a second? I'm like, that's your job to fix. Don't make me code. This is just a proof of concept. What it was that Sim made is almost like a gel that goes from, okay, I'm fine, okay, I'm fine, okay, I'm fine, if you stick your hand with it on it, into a fire, and then all of a sudden, okay, not fine. It's like a second layer of skin that absorbs the heat until it can't absorb it anymore. And then it's just like off. Reminds me of a video that we watched on the Corridor Crew channel on YouTube where Clint wanted to do a fire stunt. And so they just soaked him in fire retardant gel, which is all well and good until it is no longer on you. 
This also has some rather terrifying properties, like it turns incredibly flammable when exposed to water. Sufficient quantities of water because your sweat is fine. Probably. Yeah, that probably there is not inspiring a lot of confidence. And Sim is like, okay, so I don't have time or energy or patience to tell you exactly what this does. Just, it works until it doesn't. You are not going to game this stuff. It will work until it doesn't. You know nothing about alchemy. It will break down into certain things. I'm not going to bother explaining them because you know nothing about alchemy. And you're just going to try to reiterate it back to me wrongly. You don't understand. Say it. You don't understand. And eventually, Kvothe gets the point. After an elaborate demonstration of how, yeah, it turns out that exposing it to water does make it flammable. Say it. I know nothing about alchemy, Jon Snow. <laughs> and then Kvothe goes to the woods, meets up with his friends, shows off the gram that he made, and long story short on this chapter, they make a simulacrum of Quoth, and Sim is too timid to try it. So Mola is like, just give it to me. And then she just jabs at it and eventually horrifies everyone by shoving it in the fire. And it's fine. Quoth actually managed to get the gram to work. Here's also where he reveals to everyone, not just Will and Sim, that he owes this massive debt to Davy. And it's funny watching Mola and Fella try to interject into something. He's like, nope, don't try and talk to me about this. I know I made a mistake. I don't need a lecture. They're probably actually telling him exactly how they can help out with this. What's the best way to get Davy to not absolutely fork you up? Pay her. What can Kvothe not do by himself? Pay her. What could people who are a little bit more well-off do to help him? Pay her, and also maybe speak to the extenuating circumstances that he's been under in terms that she will understand. Right, because it seems like Mola might actually know her. And Fella, for that matter. I mean, there aren't that many women in the university structure complex anything. Chances are... And they are the ones who actually understand what all of this has been doing to Kvothe. Davy does not have the context for Kvothe's... Jack Ashery. She just sees Kvothe coming in and being rude and hostile and does not have any context for what's going on with all of this. It really, at this point, isn't about the money with her. It's about the injury to her pride. And she doesn't understand why Kvothe has done this to her why he's angry with her, why he's been making these demands. And maybe if someone were to intercede on his behalf and explain the situation, she might come to an understanding that she was seeing Kvothe on his worst day. On top of that, I don't think that Kvothe rightly explained that the person that he suspected of doing all this to him was Ambrose. Davy hates Ambrose. Everyone hates Ambrose. All right-thinking folk do, anyway. I mean, really, the surest sign that someone is a baddie in this world is if they like Ambrose. It used to be if they were a sexist pig, but, you know, Elodin. And then we see Kvothe get his first real good night's sleep since the start of the attacks. He wakes up a couple of times going, huh, that tickled. 
And then knowing that that's all it is, he just kind of rolls over and it's just amazing. All of this is about restoring that balance, restoring that sense of relief. That sense of safety. That sense of stability. All of these are massive restorations that he's needed. Also, let me just say, like, in terms of the Mary Sue narrative that we get a lot of people upset over, I think they're ignoring the fact that he fails over and over and over again before he succeeds. And it's those failures, I think, that are more interesting. What I think is bothering a lot of people more so than just the fact that he's good at everything is that every time, even after a bunch of failures, he does ultimately succeed. I think that's because he's tenacious rather than just good at everything. He is smart, even when he's being an idiot, but he is ultimately pretty smart and he is learning from his mistakes. He is just putting himself in a position to make mistakes that most people aren't able to learn from. And most people wouldn't even think to make. Quoth is one of those people who I think rarely, if ever, makes the same mistake twice. He just finds new and inventive mistakes to make each time. But as a result, he's actually learning a lot about the world, about himself, and the people in it. So I know that we really didn't go over the last two chapters in our section in great detail, but I would say that if you're looking at this in terms of like an engagement curve, that those two chapters, like, so we've got the first chapter that just kind of ramps up and then we have that release and then it goes down and the two chapters at the end are that I need downtime from the intensity of the story. They're the falling action and they're important, but the details of them are less important than the mood. Exactly. Well, with that, I think it's well past time for the Fernemos, considering that we have been talking for an hour and 45 minutes. All right. So this time I have chosen Elodin, specifically because he gets at something I think that's really important about love, which is to say that it is something that is cultivated. It's not really a love at first sight thing. You can experience affection for someone, you can experience an attraction towards someone, but it takes time to cultivate actual love. And then we see this actually mirrored by Quoth and Dena's time together immediately thereafter. Quoth recognizing that all of the time that he's spent with Dena talking about relatively minor things and unimportant things have been revealing deeper things about both of them. And then recognizing when Dena is thinking negatively about herself and when she's beating herself up over things that really she shouldn't beat herself up over and then helping to break that cycle. That's the kind of familiarity that does not happen instantaneously. That isn't that bolt out of the blue. The sense of trust that they have for one another is also something that does not happen in that love at first sight moment. That's something that is built up over time. Had Quoth and Denna not had that shared history together, those shared experiences, those adventures, those things where he has demonstrated that he cares for her over and over again, that shared that truly it was safe for them to be around one another. I don't think that, one, Denna would have done her grand gesture of buying the loot case 
and two, even if she had, Foth would not have been able to talk Denna down from that spiral. It's because of that time that they shared together that their expression of love actually lands. And I think this is something Elodin hits at. I think Elodin understands this pretty deeply, that it isn't something that you can just rush, that you can just blurt out. Like, it's not something where you can just orbitally drop your shared relationship into the desired spot. You have to build it up brick by brick. I also love here that he rejects Kvothe's logical positivism, which, I mean, seriously, extremely online atheist. This stuff was destroyed in the 20s. It's been dead for a long time, but Kvothe's insistence that I can logically explain anything and only things that I can logically explain matter. Yeah. It's tiresome. It really is. Go put on your fedora and go somewhere else. Except they normally put on a trilby. Whatever. <laughs> My brand of pedantry. Point being, I think this week Elodin is able to tell us something useful and interesting. And I think Kvothe absorbed it without necessarily realizing it. Also, just as a point to Elodin, he doesn't like contrite answers. So... He doesn't really have respect for the person who says, naming! He's like, yeah, 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 you're technically right, whatever. Shut up. I, of course, read that in the voice of Peter Falk from The Princess Bride saying, yes, yes, you're very smart, shut up. Exactly. And he also doesn't have a whole lot of patience for just knee-jerk contrarianism. Quoth, you're not as clever as you think you are. And, again, Quoth doesn't like being told how to think, but... Elodin isn't telling them how to think, or what to think even. He's basically saying, these are things that are tricky. He's asking them to think. Yes. And Kvothe doesn't like being asked to do anything. <laughs> Kvothe is, you're not the boss of me. So I believe it's your turn to give us your Elodin-esque fact of the week. Or at least one that would make him proud. So what do you got? Alright, so this one's actually kind of depressing, but more so depressing for uh, you and me because of how old we are. Because <laughs> this is starting to apply to us now. Thanks. As we get older, our reading speed gets slower. And this is kind of terrible for me anyway, because I have the reading speed of an average third grader. But that's kind of due to dyslexia and other things that aren't really relevant to this discussion. So the decline is most noticeable once a person reaches their 60s or 70s. But the bad news for you and me specifically is that this starts to happen in your early 40s. Of course, we don't have a definitive answer as to why this happens, but researchers have plenty of reasons to look into it further. And one specific reason is to help differentiate between normal aging and disorders such as Alzheimer's and dementia. So in a healthy aging brain, our reading speed will slow, but other mental factors tend to stay strong. For example, while our mental processing tends to slow down as we age, our memory for things like word meaning tends to stay consistent. So you might be tempted to think that our vision may have something to do with it. Like if you can't see as well, you can't read as well. And as we both discovered recently, that starting in your late 30s, your glasses prescription might start getting better, which you'd be tempted to think was a good thing until you realize that that's just the first step in your eyes changing to the point where you need to have bifocals. 
I'm not looking forward to bifocals. That is if you're nearsighted. So research actually shows that reading speed declines happen even if a person's vision remains the same. So this isn't to do with your vision. A newer theory actually concerns an effect called visual crowding, which I am going to call kerning and spacing. So what is this? First of all, this will be a little difficult to describe on the podcast because audio format. So I encourage you all to watch the SciShow Psych episode that this is from. And the link will be in the description of this episode. Most people are able to identify an individual letter that they see on a page faster when it is by itself than they would if it was surrounded by other letters. So like if you see the word I, so E-Y-E, and then you see a Y, you're able to identify the Y in the single letter better than you are if it's in the middle of the word. So this is even more true for words versus letters seen in the peripheral vision. Reading relies on your brain somewhat anticipating words that are coming up based on what you can see in your peripheral vision as your eye moves along the line or the page. So researchers have identified a link between visual crowding and reading speed. This effect gets stronger as we age. This means that as we age, words that are printed with more space between individual letters still have that effect of slowing down letter identification where it doesn't seem to affect younger adults like those in their 20s. To put it a different way, because this is kind of hard to explain, people find it more difficult to read a crowded line or a page, and that in turn can make them read a crowded line or page more slowly. Younger adults tend to have a smaller crowding zone, so they have a higher tolerance for crowded things than older adults. It is also thought that this may result in an older adult becoming more distracted by things that are further down the page, as they may skip to irrelevant bits more often and have to return back to where they were originally reading so that they can have context. It is also possible that as we age, our ability to keep recently read or heard things in our minds may shrink. It probably does shrink. This may result in people having to reread sentences and paragraphs over again in order to fully comprehend it. And this results in a slowdown of overall book consumption speed. So what I'm saying is we're doomed to read more slowly as we go along. Great. Sorry. So my personal thoughts on the matter are that it is okay to read slowly. I kind of have to have that because I love to consume books. I love to consume stories, but I read slowly already. It is more than okay to choose audiobooks. That definitely counts as reading. It is also okay to give up on books that you're not vibing with. A DNF isn't a failure. Soapbox here. It is not a failure. I'll also say that this opens up ebooks as a way around it as well, because those let you change the font size and variety to whatever is most readable for you. So you're not limited by whatever got pushed out on paper. Also why there are editions of books with bigger font or more space in between lines that makes it easier to read, not just because the letters are bigger. So ultimately what I'm saying is that if you really need an excuse to tell yourself it's okay not to finish a book, you can blame it on the fact that you're slowing down on your reading speed and that you would like to enjoy things, please. Fair enough. And life's too short for books you're not enjoying. 
Yes. An attitude that I did not hold when I was younger. Took me a while too. All right. So with that out of the way, I believe it's my turn for thing of the week. Yes. One of the things that you and I have been really enjoying a lot has been a show on Hulu called Only Murders in the Building. It's kind of meta for a podcast host to recommend a show about aspiring podcast hosts, but, well, here we are. The show focuses on three New York tenants of the Arconia apartment building who start a true crime podcast after one of their neighbors is found dead under mysterious circumstances. Our three amateur sleuths are Charles Hayden Savage, played by Steve Martin, who's a washed-up actor who made his name playing a hard-boiled detective named Brazos back in the 90s. Then we've got Oliver Putnam, played by Martin Short, who's a past-his-prime off-off-Broadway theatrical director who only eats dips. Lots and lots of hummus. And then we have Mabel Mora, who is a young artist with a personal connection to the deceased. So along the way, our podcast hosts navigate the path of recording and producing a show with an undefined endpoint, and they're dealing with red herrings, celebrity cameos, compromising sponsorship deals, a small but devoted fan base, as well as the challenge of what happens when they insert themselves into the narrative. The show manages to capture this autumnal vibe perfectly. Like, it's ideal for curling up over a chilly fall evening under a cozy blanket with a nice cup of hot cocoa. It's what I would call a cozy mystery. To me, it has a lot of the same vibes as one of my favorite movies in the entire world, which is Clue. It definitely has some of that. Also, if you can get past all of the everything about it, murder by death, which I find absolutely enjoyable, but also terrible. That movie does a lot of interesting things, but it absolutely does not hold up to today's mores. It didn't age well. It really didn't age well. Still a funny movie. But maybe I wouldn't spend money on it. That's fair. Back to Only Murders in the Building. This show also has perfect pacing. Each episode is right around 30 minutes, and it never feels like it is any longer than it needs to be or too short for that matter. It's laced with dark humor, even as our heroes are delving into some pretty frightening things. And it's just absolutely a delight. The chemistry between the characters is spot on. The relationships, even when they're bickering, can be filled with this level of warmth that really shows through. Just makes the whole thing a lot of fun. So anyway, grab yourself a Demas chicken wrap, pour up a tall glass of gut milk, and open up a tub of almost expired hummus and have yourself a ball. This is a good autumn evening and we're in the right season for it. To me, the other thing that makes this just amazing is although we are not a true crime podcast, the meta jokes about podcasting are just, oh, they're perfect. And... I'm really glad that they don't go into all of the hows, like how they do the podcast, like how they do all the editing and recording and all of the other things. That's not what this is about. It's not a how to podcast. This is a very fun murder mystery, kind of in the vibe of Knives Out. I really love all of this and I don't get enough of it in my life. And we just fell in love with the characters and we just fell in love with the story. They have done some really interesting storytelling within each show. And I 
applaud the creativity behind the team that made it. I also love how it has a fairly loving skewering of a lot of podcast tropes from like the concertina soundtrack or, you know, the self-serious narration or just all of the trickiness that goes into dealing with live people. You can tell that there's a real affection for all of this. It's kind of a warm blanket. Yeah. Meeting the fans. Yeah. I mean, we have a very tiny vocal fan base. Like, a few people that we've gotten to know through Twitter or Instagram. A very tiny Patreon community. The people that are portrayed as the fans of this podcast are delightfully weird. And I kind of view myself when I am the fan of a podcast as one of those little delightful weirdos. And I love all of our little delightful weirdos. I just gotta say. It's sort of the old MST3K thing where when they were asked to either explain jokes that people wouldn't get or cut them out, the response was, we're not going to do that because the right people will get it. And I think the right people get us. Absolutely. I agree with that. So with that, let's move on to seven words. So I have the books this time and I am spoiled for choice. Oh my goodness. And there is one that if you don't say it, I am going to. I mean, we've got both Elodin and Denna in the same chapter. Oh, boy. So, yeah, I've got a lot. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the list that you have is amazing. I just look through and I'm like, that's orange. That's orange. That's orange. You need to shut up and listen. That's orange. So I've got, name something that cannot be explained. Go. I have, there isn't anything that can't be explained. But can you explain how music works? Hold on a moment, we're not done. Tell Master Brand your geometry is subjective. Here we have two lovely young people. He shifts uneasily from foot to foot. I've been having a rough time lately. It's easy to forget when you're around. When you're around, it's easy to forget. I'm sure you're always looking for me. We're a lovely couple of weepy idiots. I love that one. That's the one I was going to say. Because that's us. Yeah. You're a luxury I cannot afford. Damn you. That's not funny, you bastard. You scared the hell out of me. What else do you want from me? I'll see everyone tomorrow. Don't be late. And the one that I chose was, there is something ephemeral in the air. And that's something that I think is really important to understand is that all of these things that we talk about as if they are forever represent blinks of an eye and they're fleeting and they won't last forever and that's what actually makes them valuable and that's what makes them eternal is that they are that fleeting thing that you have to capture in your mind while it is there and you have to appreciate it while it's there because you won't be able to get it back my advice then is find those ephemeral things capture them in your mind, treasure them for what they are, and let them be as they are in that moment. So I do want to say a few more of them. Okay, what else you got? Notes from Denna were a rare treat. Her offer of help caught me unprepared. Elodin stalked around to stand behind me. That one's a little bit ominous. You hold it like it's your baby, referring to the loot. I insist you come with me today. You need to shut up and listen. I 
really appreciate that from Sim because finally Sim is like, I am 100% certain in my abilities and that you don't have them. Educated women are so much more attractive. And then Mola just going back and saying, I'd like to say the same. And then seven words. But I've never known any educated men. Yeah, there's a lot. There are a lot. You had seven words from life. So what did you choose? Something that I found while I was looking at inspiration for seven words, word art for our Patreon. T, the ultimate hug in a cup. It's part of why I ask you to make my tea sometimes. I know, I love how you cup a cup of tea in your hands, like you hold it close to you, and I can see like just a little smile on your face as you do it. Like you do this unconsciously. It's really interesting. I just like that we're getting into the autumnal season where I feel like curling up with a warm cup of tea is comforting. Once we no longer have the air conditioning on, and then sometimes we get like that nice week or two where the air conditioner isn't on and the heater isn't on. But once the heater is a thing and once the cats have taken to hibernating under the couch because that's where the heater vent is, that's when I'm like, okay, I have so much tea. I should drink it all right now. Hard to believe I didn't like tea like 15 years ago. Or more, actually, less than that. Well, I'm glad you like it now. Because I'm glad that you have something that brings you joy. And with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover Chapter 33 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of the token evil teammate. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get early access to our show, show notes, bonus pods, cool posters that I am a little bit late with, sorry, pictures of hollowed out bunnies on Will's feet if we can find said photos somewhere. Wish us luck. And other exciting items. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! And a toasty on the grill wouldn't do us any harm. And a toasty on the grill wouldn't do us any harm. And a toasty on the grill wouldn't do us any harm. And we'll all hold what? All hang on behind. And we'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old. 
chariot along, and, and we'll all hang on behind.